DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Matthew. Oh, it's great to be with you, Chris. Today we're going to be talking about St. Athanasius of Alexandria. When did he become a doctor of the church? Yeah, uh, St. Athanasius was uh, named a doctor of the church in 1568 by Pope St. Pius V. In fact, he was named at the same time as uh, St. John Chrysostom, as St. Basil the Great, and also St. Gregory Nazianzus. So he is uh, ranked as one of the, the great doctors of the Church of the East. When did he actually live and participate in the life of the Church? Well, we know that uh, St. Athanasius was born probably around 298, and he died, traditionally, on May 2nd in 373. A Church father and a doctor, and one who has been described as a pillar of the Church— we have in the, the great history of the church uh, tremendous figures such as Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine that we're going to be talking about over the, the coming weeks. Athanasius emerged in the life of the church at exactly one of the most critical moments of the Arian heresy that, as we're going to talk about, called into very question the divinity of Christ. And he stood, therefore, uh, as arguably the greatest champion of orthodoxy of the Church's authentic understanding of Christ at this pivotal moment uh, in the 4th century. Where is Alexandria located? Alexandria is uh, situated in uh, northern Egypt, uh, right on uh, the Mediterranean. It was uh, established by Alexander the Great uh, in the 4th century BC and emerged very quickly as arguably the greatest city in the East. And from a very early time, it developed a, a, a Christian community. And out of that community emerged one of the two great schools in the early church for the understanding of Christian theology, uh, the other great city being in Antioch. And this is important uh, because uh, Anasius was a graduate, so to speak, of the great catechetical school uh, in Alexandria. And it provided him a superb foundation and preparation for the great struggle uh, that emerged with the Arian heresy that, ironically enough, also began in Egypt. What, what formed him and what would lead him to be a leader against this particular heresy of Arianism? Yeah, well, we know that uh, Athanasius uh, was a native of Alexandria. Uh, he was born probably between 296 and 298. Now, several historians of the church, uh, ancient historians, in particular one by the name of Rufinus and the other Socrates, uh, have saved or preserved a very famous story about his boyhood that tells us a great deal about him. 
It is said that Bishop Alexander of Alexandria uh, discovered this young boy named Athanasius baptizing several playmates right on the seashore in imitation of the bishop and at first dismissing this as just child's play. uh, Alexander discovered that this young boy uh, displayed such presence of mind and knowledge of doctrine that Alexander declared the baptisms to be entirely valid and that the, uh, the, in, this youth in front of him, uh, somebody with a potentially brilliant future, and of course that's exactly what happened, he took the youth under his wing and uh, gave him over to the education and the spiritual formation of the best priests that he knew in the city, and was always very active also in Athanasius's preparation and, and spiritual and intellectual and human formation. This is important because what it meant was that right from the start, Athanasius was raised in an atmosphere of orthodox teaching. He also received knowledge in grammar, in rhetoric, in theology, and eventually uh, became the private secretary to Bishop Alexander. Now, as all of this was happening, of course, around 318 in Egypt, a priest by the name of Arius began preaching that the son, he said, was begotten apart from time by the father and was a being created and founded before the ages. Now, if this sounds a little strange, uh, it, it should, because what this priest was basically saying is that Christ is not eternal or co-eternal. He was not uh, consubstantial with the Father. He was not uh, unoriginated with the Father. So that in effect, what this priest was saying was that the Son of God was not eternal, but created by the Father from nothing. That, That Christ was a changeable creature with his dignity bestowed upon him as Son of God. Now, this, of course, horrified bishops all over the East. And... Athanasius, as the private secretary to Bishop Alexander, had the opportunity to travel with him uh, to the famous Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, that had been convoked by Emperor Constantine the Great and, of course, uh, by Pope St. Sylvester. Its purpose was very clear, to condemn Arianism and then to establish a creed uh, that really expresses Uh, the relationship between the Father and the Son within the Godhead. Athanasius went to Nicaea, as I said, with Alexander as his secretary, but also as a theological advisor. By 325, Athanasius was already well known within the city. Uh, He was writing treaties in defense of orthodoxy. So despite his youth, despite that he was still in his 20s, Uh, He was considered a very formidable presence. And it was said uh, during the council that uh, he was one of the great figures for supporting this. Uh, According to another historian by the name of Theodoret, Anasius, he wrote, contented earnestly uh, for the apostolic doctrines and was, quote, applauded by their champions while earning the hostility of the opponents. Now, when we talk about the hostility of the opponents, this is actually a very ominous thing because it 
isn't just like having a, a type of disagreement in rhetoric. This could be potentially dangerous to one's health. Very much so. Uh, and of course, what happened was that uh, Arianism was condemned, but it soon made a return to power. And the aging Constantine the Great uh, succumbed to the pressure of the Arians within his own court. And as we've also seen many times in the history of the church involving heresy, certainly we see this with the Protestant Reformation. Once an issue, once a, a crisis in the church of heresy becomes politicized, once secular rulers begin to attempt to influence the church, it goes from bad to worse. And this is, of course, precisely what happened with the Arian controversy, that from the death especially of Constantine the Great, uh, the empire was divided up among his sons, and several of them uh, became adherents uh, to the Arian heresy, and therefore began to impose uh, imperial, at times violent, solutions uh, to uh, the, the crisis. They used soldiers to impose heretical bishops on different sees, the exiled uh, bishops who refused to succumb to heretical doctrines. And unfortunately, Athanasius was going to be one of those. And he returned home after Nicaea and displayed such skill uh, as the private secretary and earned such a reputation during the council that when Alexander died around 328, Athanasius was very speedily elected uh, to succeed him. Now, this is uh, important again because his election as the Bishop of Alexandria, one of the most important sees in the whole of the church, came, as I said, right as the Arians were beginning to regain their ascendancy. And his position in the, the church in Egypt and then, of course, in the church in the east singled him out uh, by the Arians for hostility and for exile. And there was also about him a, a certain power. Uh, his personality was so significant and, and so remarkable that the Arians understood right from the start that if they were going to have any hopes of imposing their will upon the church, especially in the East, this is somebody they had to remove, to get rid of, uh, in order to clear the way for their own victory. But I say this because it, it, there's this wonderful incongruity there because Athanasius was not a very big man. Uh, it is said that uh, he was tiny. Uh, he was dismissed, in fact, uh, uh, by one of the emperors, uh, Emperor Julian the Apostate, as, quote, a despicable mannequin because he was so small. And yet he was such a towering intellect that his size seemed to grow uh, with stature, with each new outrage committed against him. And his will was many, many times the size of his physical form. So during the course of this tumultuous period, what would then occur to Athanasius? Yeah, well, as, as we've seen, he was the most articulate and the most determined adversary of Arianism. It made him, therefore, as we also say, 
achieve target. And throughout the next decades, he was exiled at least four times and suffered almost endless humiliations, starting, uh, as I said, with the Aryan resurgence in Constantinople in, in 328, when he refused to readmit uh, Aryans to uh, their offices, for example. Uh, Aryans in the court, the imperial court, uh, connived to have him charged with various crimes and improprieties. The outlandish charges uh, in included the, the one that he had somehow not reached appropriate age at the time of his election. But even worse, they said that he had put a, an Aryan bishop to death and had committed sorcery and had even used his dismembered corpse, they said, for evil magic. Goodness. This is the degree to which their uh, hostility went. Now, he was brought before a council at Tyre in 335, uh, but his enemies had already decided his guilt. He knew that this council was simply going to condemn him, uh, probably arrest him, and imprison him. So instead, he fled and made a direct appeal to the emperor. It was denied, however, as the Arians came up with a new lie against him, and that was that he had attempted to interrupt the corn, the vital corn supply, from Egypt to Constantinople. And therefore, uh, he was exiled to the city of modern city of Trier for over two years. Only with the, the death of Arius in 336 and then of Constantine in 337 and the emergence of the new co-emperors was he permitted to return. But this was, the, while this was the cause of immense joy in, in Alexandria, it was short-lived as he faced exiled quickly uh, by the Aryan supporting emperor for the East, Constantius II. And here we begin this cycle of exiles and returns as emperors interfering in the life of the church. Some would bring him back, they would die, another emperor would come in, and Athanasius would again be forced to flee. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. 
For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. One of the most dangerous times uh, followed the assassination of Emperor Constance in 350, when the Arians once again came to power. He condemned, uh, Athanasius was condemned at councils in Arles and Milan, and then a third banishment was announced to him in the middle of the night on February 8, 356, while in fact he was saying mass in a church. Soldiers arrived to arrest him, to take him away in chains. And Athanasius continued to say the mass and then finished uh, an important point that he was trying to make by quoting uh, the, the wonderful line that his mercy endureth forever. As the soldiers then charged the altar, the crowd entered into such an uproar that it allowed Athanasius to join into the crowd and in the confusion escaped. And to give an idea of his precarious position, uh, he went into the desert and spent nearly six years among the desert monks there. Now he had known uh, St. Antony of the Desert. Uh, it is said, for example, that he wrote the, the famous life of St. Antony of the Desert. But throughout that whole time, he was hunted down like a criminal. 
His life was always in danger, and soldiers were often sent into the, de the deserts to find him, uh, especially the, the little communities of monks along the Nile. And it is said that uh, once while being pursued, uh, he knew that the soldiers were near, that they were sailing down the Nile in pursuit of him. So he took a small boat and instead rowed in the opposite direction and actually encountered the soldiers who did not make the connection that this was the man they were seeking. So they didn't recognize him, but they asked him if he knew where the evil fugitive Athanasius might be found. And realizing that they didn't know who he was, he replied calmly as he sailed past them, Athanasius is not far from here. <laughs> what a wonderful story. But this was, this was the life that he led. And even in the midst of it, though, it is said that in exile, in the desert, in the silence of the desert, in the burning light of the sun, and then by the still light of the candles at night, he wrote and he wrote. And he wrote some of his greatest works, including his oration against the Arians. So that out of this time of torment and suffering, out of these exiles, uh, we can add that at one point he had to hide in the very tomb of his parents. He was perfecting the virtues in himself. He was writing in defense of the true faith. And he was living the life of a saint. So that, like a crucible, he was being burned of all of the impurities in him. And the experience of his exiles, I think, prepared him really for the triumph of orthodoxy. Uh, and when he was able to return at last, after so many years of exile, uh, to the Sea of Alexandria, he brought with him this profound, even profounder holiness. And the gestures that he made during that time were important, not just for the defense of orthodoxy, but for the reunification of the church. Or he was very generous to the defeated Arians and used charity, he used love, he used, used patience and fortitude in putting together what was a severely broken uh, diocese of Alexandria. Uh, we forget that the tactics that the Arians often used included brutality and, and even assassination and, and torture uh, to bend others to their will. And there were many who had suffered during this time, but there were many who also repented of their involvement in so terrible a, a, a time of heresy. Do you suppose, Matthew, he was so popular with his people because he communicated the message that God was so accessible, that he wasn't, a, that Jesus Christ wasn't a secondary God or something that was, uh, I think it was, Pope Benedict XVI that said that he was indeed true God, true man, that he is God with us. And that's, you know, that's such an, an important thing that touches the heart. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, he wrote, for example, around 318, uh, a treatise on the incarnation. And he used that the phrase that uh, was also adopted by so many other great theologians, including Augustine, that, that God became man so that man might become God. 
And his understanding of the Incarnation compelled him uh, to stand as a forceful defender of orthodoxy. But he saw the struggle within the context especially of Christ's redemptive work of salvation, the grace of divine sonship offered through redemption. As, as Athanasius taught, the divine son is eternally generated by the Father, and so both must share the same nature. At the same time, both the Son and the Father must be truly distinct, or as, as he wrote, for the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But, but you've hit on something very important there, and that is that the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ are, are perfectly found in Christ. And therefore, Christ is the supreme role model for all people, but he is also a member of these a person of the Holy Trinity. And that mystery, the, the, the beauty of the incarnation then, was destroyed by Arianism that reduced Christ to a creature. And therefore, the, the whole magnificence of redemption is destroyed. The harmony of that is destroyed as well. Arianism had wrecked the beauty of the whole of the, the teachings of the church, all in the name of trying to understand Christ. And, and this is uh, one of the aspects that we see with Athanasius that we're going to see with, with other doctors of the church who are also fathers of the church from this time, that their work is so vital to us today because they helped to clarify uh, for the church what the church truly believes understands of authentic teachings. Athanasius provided for the church a powerful, clear understanding of Christ's divinity and his humanity, but above all, Christ's divinity as central to our salvation, but also central to our comprehension of the incarnation and the Trinity. You spoke of his great holiness, especially that became so apparent after his time in the desert. He would also go on to write about the great desert father, St. Anthony, mm -hmm. and not to be confused with Anthony of Padua, the Franciscan, but this, this uh, St. Anthony, many different names, St. Anthony the Hermit, St. Anthony of the Desert, yes. but, this, but this was one who really honed the depths of that contemplation which brought him in a close closer relationship with God through prayer. And Athanasius passed that on, that legacy, that story, it was told because of his work. Yes. Uh, there are great sources for the development of monasticism, especially in the West. And Athanasius, I think, stands as one of those pivotal bridges it is generally believed that he wrote the, the Vita or the life of St. Anthony of the Desert. Regardless, Athanasius was uh, somebody who knew Anthony, who extolled the work that he was doing, but who then also made accessible to future generations this incredible experiment of the monks in the desert. And that, of course, captured the imagination of Christians all over 
the Eastern Empire, and then into the West. And in that sense, then, he played, as, as I said, a, a role of, of a bridge between those, those early monastic communities in the desert, uh, starting with St. Anthony, that what was called the, the Cenobitic life, this monastic life, in which Athanasius himself had participated during his time of exile, making that accessible uh, to those in the West who soon found the attributes of this life so appealing, the solitary encounter with prayer with God in the desert, uh, in the, the cell, in that monastic community. And in that sense, then, uh, we owe a, a debt to St. Athanasius, not just as one of the great fathers of orthodoxy, one of the great defenders of uh, the authentic teachings of the church in helping us understand those teachings more, but also as one of those conduits for the monastic life that became such a hallmark of Christian civilization in the West. And uh, as we're going to see in the coming weeks as we talk about other doctors, uh, the great building blocks for much of Western civilization through the monasteries, through the monastic life. I wish we had more time to explore this incredible doctor of the church. And yet, as you just said, there we will see his influence in so many others. What would you say in closing, Matthew, on this particular episode? Yeah, Athanasius for us today, for modern defenders and apologists of the Catholic faith, he is our sure guide. He is a reminder of two important realities. The first is that the truth will triumph if we hold fast to it, even in the face of lies, of danger, of calumny, of humiliation. But even more, he teaches us that defending the truth is never an easy task. In his time, in his life, he faced slander, violence, and even the threat of death for standing firm and proclaiming the truth. The life of Athanasius makes every one of us who loves the faith, every one of us who seeks to defend the faith, ask the same question. Would I be willing to follow in Athanasius' footsteps? Would I be willing to endure this in the name of the faith? And, and it's a hard question, but it's one that's worth asking in ourselves. And if we're not sure about the answer, we need to deepen our faith, but also to deepen our understanding of the faith. Because if we, like Athanasius, understand truly the beauty of Catholic teaching, who Christ is, we would be willing to endure this, even to the point of death. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much. It's a privilege to be with you, Chris. I look forward to our next episode. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it in the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this program has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely. 
to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.